All right, well, good morning. Um, if you have your Bible, go ahead and open to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, we are continuing there together today. And give me just a second to get situated up here. So yeah, Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to be taking the second half of the chapter today. Um, before we dive in and, and read it, so, so a little bit over six years ago, I moved across the country to go to grad school in Seattle. Uh, the very first day of school, a really curious thing happened. All right, the whole school had gathered together for this time of orientation, where the president and the dean would address everyone and share some words as we went into the school year. They stood up, they looked at all of us, and they said, Welcome, students. Now, I say this is curious because he was calling us students. Even though at that moment, I had not yet attended a class, I had not yet received a homework assignment, I had not yet uh, written any papers, right? This is the first day of school, and yet, welcome students. I haven't started studying yet, but this is what he called us. And it was true, right? It was true, I suppose, but that statement, welcome students, would only become more true as I continued and went deeper and deeper into my studies and wrote papers and, and all of that. I was a student, but I was about to be far more become a student, right? And life is filled with these pivotal moments, these pivotal statements like these, where something is true about us, but it only becomes more true as we move forward. Think of these words. I now pronounce you husband and wife. Right? A couple years ago, someone spoke those words over Caitlin and me after we exchanged vows and, and rings. And it was true the moment they spoke those words. But it has only become more true since then. Or, or think about getting a call that, hey, you got the job, right? You know at that moment that, that, hey, you are now an engineer. You are now a teacher. You are now a sales associate. You are now a nurse. You are now fill in the blank, right? You got the job. This is who you are. But it only becomes more true in the days ahead as you start your job and get to work. Or here's another example, right? Think of the moment that you learned that you were pregnant or that you learned that you are a father, right? News like that just transforms reality, right? And in that moment, it is true that you're a mother or a father, but it only becomes more true in the days and the years ahead as you raise your child, as you feed them, change their diapers, see them walk and talk and grow, right? You are a mother or a father in that moment, but it only becomes more true, right? I'm sure there are plenty of other examples of this kind of thing. Our lives are filled with these kinds of moments where something true is spoken over us, but it only becomes more true as we live more deeply into it, right? And our life with God is like this too, 
Now, last week, we started the book of Ephesians together, and we said that it offers this really unique perspective about what it means to be the church. And we dug into that opening blessing in verses 3 through 14. And today, as I mentioned, we're going to read the rest of this first chapter, verses 15 through 23. And this whole first chapter of Ephesians is kind of one of these things that like, we've been talking about so far. It's something is true, but it is going to become, it is becoming more true. And so the first half of this chapter, Paul speaks the truth that in Christ we are chosen, destined, adopted, redeemed. Right? These are some of the things we talked about together last week. But in the second half of this chapter, Paul prays that these things would become more true. In the first half, Paul says, in essence, welcome students. And in the second half, we get to learning as he prays that we might know these fundamental truths. So let's read his prayer and dig into it. Ephesians chapter 1, we'll begin in verse 15. I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. And for this reason, I do not cease to give thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him, so that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe? According to the working of his great power, God put this power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he has put all things under his feet and has made him the head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for all the ways that you have loved us and spoken to us. God, I pray that what is true would become more true for us today. That as we reflect on the words of your scripture, we ask that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so now this idea that we've been talking about this morning, where something is true but becoming more true, might be summed up in these words, knowledge and experience. Knowledge and experience, right? It is one thing to know something objectively, to have knowledge about it, like you studied it in a textbook. But it's another thing to experience something 
and know it personally. It's the difference between learning and living. There is knowledge and there is experience, and these two are meant to be connected to each other. But a lot of times we end up with one and not the other. Right? On the one hand, you can read a lot of books, you can know a lot of facts, you can do a lot of research, but never actually leave the library. Right? You can have a lot of knowledge, but not experience. But on the other hand, there are plenty of folks who can have all kinds of experiences, but never learn anything from them. Right? No matter how many times they've made that mistake or experienced that failure or whatever it may be, they keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. They have experience, but no knowledge. Now, Scripture actually has the same word for both of these things, right? The one with knowledge and no experience, and the one with experience but no knowledge. Uh, scripture calls it a, a fool. You, you know, if you look through the wisdom literature of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job, the recurring theme through all of those is the connection between knowledge and experience. The, the writer of Ecclesiastes over and over again says, I saw and, and I reflected. Right? I saw this, but then he reflects on it. He doesn't just know it. He he's lets himself really experience it. That's this theme throughout all of the wisdom literature. You know, one without the other is foolishness. But both together, that's wisdom. This is the essence of Paul's prayer here. Paul prays for knowledge and experience. He prays for both, for, for truth to become more true, right? And we see this connection from the very start of what we read today. In verse 15, Paul says, I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, right? These two things, faith in Jesus and love for the saints, are connected. In fact, they are inseparably linked on the one hand, there's knowledge, right? There's faith in Jesus believing the message of the gospel, having good theology. But then on the other hand, there's experience, love for the saints, living out the gospel, putting that theology into practice. These two things go together. Jesus himself said in John 13, 35, by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Right? These two things are meant to go together. And this is what Paul begins with. Knowledge and experience. Faith and love. What is true and what is more true. We begin with faith in Jesus, but that faith becomes more true as we learn to live in love for one another. And I love that Paul uses the word saints so often, right? It is a perfect example of this idea that we're talking about, right? Up in verse 1, he addresses this letter to the saints. And then here in verse 15, he refers to love toward all the saints. We hear that address to the saints, and we think, well, there's no way this could possibly be referring to us, right? There's no way he could be talking to me. 
You, you get a letter that's addressed to the saints and you just, oh, they got to return to sender. That clearly is the wrong address. But it is true. It is true. And it's meant to become more true as we live in God. It's like the dean calling us students. Before we begin our studies, Paul calls us saints before we're anywhere close to holy. But when Paul addresses us as saints, he is not referring to anything that we've done. He is referring to what God has done in us. So this is what Paul is saying, and I want you to hear it clearly. In Christ, you are a saint. You are holy. This is true of you. And as this passage continues, Paul prays that it would become more true as we continue to grow in Christ and walk in the Spirit. Now, before we move on, I want to say one more thing about this, because the fact that this passage is a prayer says a lot, because Paul doesn't only say faith and love. You know, he doesn't just say knowledge and experience are connected. He demonstrates it. As we saw in the first half of the chapter, verses 3 through 14 are densely packed with this rich, true, and deep theology. But in verses 15 through 23, that theology pours out in love as Paul prays for the saints. And we'll see this pattern a couple of times throughout the book of Ephesians, where Paul fluidly moves between teaching and prayer, between theology and doxology, worship. This is the pattern of Christian life with God. Prayer is the means by which what is true becomes more true. Prayer is the fuel that moves knowledge toward experience. Prayer is the thing that turns faith into love. And this is what Paul prays for. All right, so, so the prayer, the base of his prayer is really in verse 17. He, he begins, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him, so that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may know. Right? And then in the next couple of verses, he lists three things that he wants us to know. But I want to reflect on this, this base in verse 17 a little more closely before we look at those three things that he goes on to list. Because Paul is using the word know. But he's not just talking about knowledge. right? He's talking about knowledge with experience. This prayer is not just for us to know, but for us to grow. This is, is what Paul is doing here. It's not just a declaration of truth, but a prayer that would become more true. So first, he, he wants us to receive a spirit of both revelation and wisdom, right? right? We, we already talked about this biblical paradigm of wisdom and foolishness, right? Wisdom is, is knowledge and experience, right? But Paul's prayer here uh, is for revelation and wisdom. Re revelation by itself isn't wisdom. 
That's faith without love. That's knowledge without experience. But he prays for revelation and wisdom. That we would not only know the truth, but live the truth. A spirit of wisdom and revelation. Right? And the purpose of this, he says, is to know God better. To know Jesus better. And this isn't just head knowledge about God or Jesus. This is heart knowledge. That's exactly what he goes on to say. He prays that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened. Right? These are not the eyes of cold observation, but rather the eyes of personal revelation. Not just knowledge, but experience. And we desperately need this. Because the problem is not that God does not love us or pursue us. The problem is that the eyes of our hearts fail to see his love and his pursuit. If we're honest, you know, left on our own, our hearts can be pretty cold. And our sights isn't so great, right? It's pretty dim. But with God's spirit of wisdom and revelation, there is warmth for cold hearts. And there is light for dim eyes. With the eyes of our hearts enlightened, we are not only able to know the truth of the gospel, but to experience that truth as it becomes more true in our lives. So these are the things that Paul prays for us to know, all right? This is the rest of his list. He prays for us to know the hope of God's calling, the riches of his glorious inheritance, and the immeasurable greatness of his power. All right, now, I want to say something about each of these, but first, I want to point out something about all of these. And the word I want to underscore here is the word his. I think that we're far too accustomed to thinking of these things as, as really ours. But over and over again, Paul says, these are God's. Right? We, we just looked at that base of this prayer in verse 17, that God would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation as we come to know what? Or who, right? As we come to know him. So calling, inheritance, and power, these are his. As we come to know these things, we are coming to know him. So let's look a little bit more closely at each one of these, all right? First, the hope to which he has called you. Now, now this is what our reading says and what many translations say, but a more literal and, and I think actually a better translation of this phrase is the hope of his calling, right? That you would know the hope of his calling because it has that word his there. Uh, and, and that's just a little bit more literal. Uh, and I think it, it's, it's actually better because this is not referring to our calling, but rather to God's call. Uh, when we think of the word calling, we often think of our purpose in life, right? What is my calling? What has God called me to do? But that's not what Paul is talking about here. He's not talking about our purpose in life, but rather the sound of God's voice, God's calling. The image here is of creation. Whenever God calls out, he says, let there be light, 
and then there is light. Right? On each day, God calls, and then creation bursts forth. This is the hope of his calling. The hope of his calling is as sure as creation itself. God calls, and it happens. Now, this does have something to do with us, because, well, look at the context, right? That whole first half of the chapter, Paul lists all kinds of things that God has done in Christ. He chose us before the foundation of the world. He destined us to be adopted as his children. He redeemed us from sin. He lavished us with grace. These are the things that God calls forth. This is his calling. And Paul prays for us to know the hope of his calling. He wants us to know that when God sets out to do something, it happens. This is something we can truly hope in. So, so no, we're not supposed to set our hope in our calling as if there's some kind of blueprint plan for our life that we need to figure out, otherwise we've missed our destiny. Rather, we need to know the hope of his calling. In Christ, all of God's purposes are accomplished, and our knowledge will become experience. His calling is full of hope. This is the first thing that Paul prays for. The second one that he prays for is the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints. And again, I want to underscore that word, his. Because it's easy again for us to read this and think that it's our glorious inheritance. And then we start imagining, who knows what, some kind of idyllic heavenly paradise, streets filled with gold that we'll go to someday. That's not what Paul's talking about here. Paul is not praying for us to know the riches of a glorious inheritance for the saints, but rather the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints. Again, I want you to hear this closely. This is not about something that we get from God. Rather, it's about what we are to God. It's not about something we get from God. This is about who we are to God. We are his glorious inheritance. His glorious inheritance is among the saints. That's us. We are God's glorious inheritance. Paul is not praying that we would know about going to be with God in heaven someday. He's praying that as his glorious inheritance, we would know what it means to belong to God right here, right now. If, if the whole point of Christian faith is to go to heaven someday, then it's ultimately idolatry, right? Because it's about what we can get from God. But the point is not that. The point is God himself. We are his glorious inheritance. And this is not idolatry, it's identity. We belong to him. We are his glorious inheritance. This is not about the knowledge of some far-off thing. Rather, it is about the experience of belonging 
to God right now, being God's rich and glorious inheritance. And again, this is true of you. God's people, you are God's inheritance. You are the saints. It's true, but may it become more true as you come to know the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints. So this is the second thing that Paul prays for us to know. The third one is that we would know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. And once again, we can underline the word his. Paul is praying for us to know the immeasurable greatness of God's power, not our power. Christianity is not about using moral power to stop sinning and do good deeds. If it were, we would all fail pretty utterly, I think. Right? And neither is it about gaining cultural power through politics. We need to remember this all the more in the coming months. Rather, following Jesus is about surrender. Following Jesus is about giving up our power and acknowledging God's power. This great power that he works for us, in us, who believe. And God's power is not like our power. It's not like what we imagine power to be. And that's what the rest of this passage is about. So look at verse 20. It says, God put this power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Right now, if, if we're not careful, then we have a tendency to superimpose our understanding of power on this passage. And, and we miss the point. Right? When we put our view of power onto this passage, uh, then we just pay attention to Jesus sitting on a throne, being better than everyone else, with everything under his feet. This is the power of domination. This is the power of control that crushes everything else. But that is not the power of God. God put his power to work. How? In Christ, when he raised him from the dead. The power of God is resurrection. And in order to be resurrected, you have to die. There is no resurrection without death. Before Christ was seated on a throne with all things under his feet, he hung on a cross with nails through his feet. This is the power of God. The power of God is found in surrender. The life of God is found in death. The power of God is resurrection, which includes death. And this is not just some kind of spiritual resurrection, right? This is the actual, real, historical, bodily resurrection of Jesus. Not just knowledge, but experience. You see, Paul is writing this and praying this out of his own experience. 
right? Paul was a smart guy, and, and he had a pretty extensive knowledge of the law, of the prophets, of, of all the writings of the Old Testament, right? He also knew that Jesus was a guy who'd been teaching for a while and then got killed on a cross. But there was some sect of Jews who were still going on about him. There were some people who were still preaching about him, right? And so Paul, with his knowledge of the law, he, he sought to extinguish what, what he knew to be some kind of false movement. What is this? You know, so, so you know, he sets out to, to destroy the church, to, to see it utterly destroyed, to, to see the people put to death. But then, in Acts chapter 9, Paul has an experience. He encounters the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus. And Jesus appears to him and says, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? And this experience that Paul has upends everything that he thinks he knows. It transforms his understanding of Jesus for sure, but it also transforms his understanding of the church. After all, who was Paul persecuting? The church. And yet, who did Jesus say that Paul was persecuting? Him. Right? The church belongs to Jesus. The church is the body of Jesus. And that's what we see as, as all that Paul is praying and writing here comes to a great crescendo. In verse 23, Paul writes, the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Right? This is yet another one of Paul's statements. It is true, but is becoming more true. Right? He calls us saints. He calls us the body of Christ. He calls us the fullness of him who fills all in all. These things are true, but may they become more true as we continue to live in Christ. And so here's the, the sort of challenge I want to leave you with this week. Uh, as you think about knowledge and experience, which one of these do you, do you tend to lean towards? Which one of these do you maybe have more of? You know, do, do you tend to be someone with, with a lot of knowledge, but, but maybe not quite putting that into practice? Or do you tend to be someone with a lot of experience, but maybe not having taken time to really reflect on it and, and, and learn from it and grow in it? My, my hope for us is that we could be a people of knowledge and experience. That we would re receive this spirit of wisdom and revelation. That we would know and love. It's what we pray every time we come to the text. That he would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts. So we would not only have knowledge, but also love and the experience of it. May it be so. Amen.